welcome everyone to Science Society and of course a special welcome to you Ophir and David. Uh, it's so nice of you to, you know, take the time to come here, go through the hassle to uh, create the account and everything. We really appreciate it. And <laughs> now we figured everything out. So uh, let me start with introducing David, uh, David Castillo Zufefa. I hope I said it more or less right. Uh, <laughs> he is a principal um, uh, scientist and group leader at Ginnentech in uh, South San Francisco, California. And do you know by any chance Rosa Barreda? Ooh, I don't, it doesn't, uh, doesn't ring a bell, but uh, She's an immunologist. It's, it's quite a big, yeah, it's, oh, okay. I mean, immunology, in this, in immunology, so I should, uh, might have okay. crossed paths with her, yeah. Yeah, they, yeah, because she is also at Gentech, a uh, principal um, scientist now. And uh, yeah, I thought maybe <laughs> she was wow. in my PhD uh, group class. So that's oh. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah. Um, so David, he um, went to a university at the Universidad de Costa Rica um, for his bachelor in biology and then later to the University of South Carolina, a professional um, science master in biotechnology. And he did then later his PhD at the University of Colorado Anschutz um, in cell biology and stem cells and development. Um, yeah, and then um, we are very honored to have here uh, Professor Ophir Klein. Um, he is a professor, said us, uh, Sinai and um, and the vice dean at the children's services at Cedar Sinai and um, he is a David and Meredith Kaplan distinguished chair at the children's health Cedar Sinai and he uh, did his bachelor um, at the University of California in Berkeley and then later his PhD in genetics at Yale University and um, his MD also at Yale University School of Medicine. And, and before he was assistant professor at the University of California. And um, he hold various um, really impressive um, uh, positions before uh, being here at um, Genentech. So uh, it's, it's an honor to have you here. And thank you so much. And, yeah, as I said a few minutes ago, we start with the question, how did you discover that you wanted to be a scientist or work, you know, um, in research? And uh, yeah, we said that David would start. So <laughs> thank you. Uh, yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks, Katarina. Thanks for uh, having uh, both of us. Uh, so I, I should say that growing, growing in, uh, tropical country, uh, rough, uh, like um, uh, tropical uh, Costa Rica, it was, it was quite easy, I believe, to get into biology because you see so many things, so many like high diversity of plants and animals around you that it's, it's actually not an untypical 
a dream of of people back home um, to think about uh, about biology. So I, I think that definitely growing growing there that that helped. Um, however, what I would what I should uh, come clean about it is that my path from biology to what I'm doing now hasn't been that, um, let's say, a, a straightforward. It has been more, a, I would say, going with the flow and with, um, a, when, as time passes, learning a little bit more and more about different things that uh, biology uh, encompass. And I remember that um, after my uh, undergraduate studies in, in Costa Rica and being in South Carolina, one of the, I would say, uh, defining moments was uh, the, the, um, the paper from Shinja Yamanaka where they uh, discovered these uh, iPS cells, like how can we basically go from a somatic differentiated cell into revert them into, into a stem cell. And that's that was like a key moment for me when I was like, "How is this possible? How can we? How can people do this?" And that's where I would say my my passion for uh, stem cells started. And as during my during during my PhD, like that was like a, also a defining moment, figuring out not only how. Uh, we can make new stem cells, but actually that already in the body, we have stem cells that we can harness and we can um, kind of manipulate and uh, drive them into um, different types of tissue that would benefit uh, patients in, in general in the in the future. And yeah, uh, and ending up in, you know, Fierce Lab as a postdoc, that's where my passion for uh, intestinal biology uh, started, and that's where that's what uh, I'm doing, uh, continuing my research in, in in my lab at Genentech now. Well, that's wonderful, and it's it's interesting to hear. Um, yeah, it's it's very nice to hear that this environment that you grew up in kind of has enforced you to become a scientist and and work you know, be curious about your environment. Um, that's really nice. And I think, yeah, it's really important for children to just be outside and and experience the world and not just their iPad. So <laughs> parents out there listen to this. <laughs> totally agree. Totally agree. Yeah, that's a great story to support that thesis. So, And um, yeah, Ophir, is it, um, would you like to share yeah. your Sorry, thank you. Yeah, no, my, mine is uh, a little bit more serendipitous than David. So actually, when I started, I can't say that I was uh, obsessed with biology when I was growing up. And maybe it's because I didn't get to grow up in a beautiful place like uh, like Costa Rica, <laughs> more in suburban California. But I, I started university and actually completed my degree in Spanish literature. So I was kind of a late late bloomer when it came to science, but I was fortunate when I began, um, when I began in college, I, there was a, a graduate student who lived in my dorm 
um, who was also my TA for chemistry. And uh, there was an opportunity to work in a lab. And she said, oh, you should give this a try. And I just found that I really liked being in the lab. And so I um, then went through a number of different uh, processes, thought processes, and decided I was going to go to medical school. And um, and then uh, I did an MD-PhD. And, and there I really spending a lot of time in the lab, I, I found that I really liked it. And I, I did my PhD in viral genetics um, and clinically became very interested in uh, clinical genetics and then developmental biology, which is related. So then decided I was going to study organ development and, um, and through developmental biology, then got into stem cell biology. So it was a little bit of a winding path to where I ended up. Yeah, that's that's um that's nice um because then you get to learn a lot of different topics and see problems from right different angles. It's really interesting. I, that that's also an interesting story because I got into neuroscience because I like uh, electrophysiology. <laughs> I was really struggling to you know to, I had to decide where to do my masters and the, the rotations and I was kind of starting neuroautonomy. Oh my god. Like I was like bored and, and then there was electrophysiology and then, oh my God, okay, I found what I like to do. I'm so <laughs> glad. <laughs> um, yeah, that, that's nice. Um, and uh, yeah, from there, uh, Ophir, how did you, you kind of alluded already how you got into this field, but maybe is there a, a a story like a peek behind the curtain how this project came about like was it you know was pretty straightforward were you about to give up yeah um, no actually so. it was unstraightforward. <laughs> I, I can tell the first half and then i'll pass it along to david who actually did all of the the work on it um so our lab uh, became interested in epithelial stem cells in general um, over a decade ago and through a collaboration with a colleague at Genentech, um, where David now works, we got very interested in the gut and had been looking at various cellular behaviors, primarily how stem cells enable renewal and questions around identity and plasticity. Um, and uh, I would actually point you to a nice review that David wrote uh, with a, another former postdoc on, on some of these questions um, that he published a couple years ago. And um, I had a, a friend at UCSF, this guy, Todd Neistel, who was working um, in Drosophila and was interested in this gene called DLG1 that he thought was very important in um, stem cell competition in the fly. And he had a postdoc who began to look at whether the same thing was true in the mouse. And um, they began to work with a mouse model. And then the postdoc uh, left. She got a faculty position. And um, Todd said, well, maybe you guys want to help us sort of wrap this thing up. We have a lot of data. You know, we have promising hints that maybe it's involved in cell competition, but not clear yet. Um, and so uh, I had a former postdoc in our lab who I asked to take this on and she began to look at it and it wasn't totally clear how strong the the signal was for for cell competition uh, but she had a hint that there was something interesting going on uh, and then she ended up actually getting recruited to go to biotech and so the project was was a little bit uh, 
abandoned again. At that point, I talked to David and Tom Wald, another uh, postdoc in the lab, and asked them if they would be interested in looking at this. And they did this amazing job of taking a story where there there wasn't really a strong sense of what was going on and making what I think are some pretty remarkable discoveries. And so at this point, I'll turn it over to David since he was the one who actually was there day to day doing this. I'll let him tell the very winding path that this story took. I think it's it's the most circuitous, at least one of the most circuitous stories that we've had in the lab. Yeah, it's it. it uh, yeah, it was first off, I, I think like I, I want to reiterate how important it is to 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 talk to your colleagues uh well obviously in science that it's super important because like really this collaboration uh was as Sophia said it started between between him and and, and Todd and and really uh Todd comes from a, a Drosophila a, a background and Ophir um having uh, mainly focus on um, uh, mammalian biology. It was it was very a, a very uh, 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 actually joyful collaboration. But again, it's, it started just uh, with a simple conversation between between colleagues, and uh, yeah, like as as Sophia was saying, it has been how. Uh, there are some stories that just click, right? You start doing an experiment and it's kind of a, a like a snowball. It starts to get bigger, bigger, and uh, things just uh, start fitting into place like a, a little puzzle. But uh, definitely this was not the case with this story. What, <laughs> what which, which makes it, I, I think like it, it definitely holds a, a, a dear place in my in my heart because of that and one of the key things that i that i learned from this process and it i still it's sticking in my mind is like uh, after every lab meeting that we had uh, uh, tom and myself presenting the our our updates uh, of fear i would say like most like i would say like 99 percent of at the end of each lab meeting was like, guys, great job, keep going, keep going. I know that is, that is, it, it's, we are getting closer and closer and uh, perseverance will pay. And that really has, has stuck with me because uh, this is really a story where uh, perseverance uh, was something that we had to uh, learn. Um, so. So yes, as, as also Theo was mentioning, uh, the story started uh, with really beautiful data from uh, Todd's lab. Um, uh, however, as we started uh, when when Tom and myself started uh, digging deeper into uh, the biology in in the in the mammalian testing, uh, we started seeing. Uh, a different phenotype uh, arising and a phenotype that we had to, what I think was uh, to be creative, uh, uh, creative to, uh, in designing experiments to really uh, shine a light on, on, the, on, on, 
on this phenotype because initially wasn't that uh, it wasn't that obvious. So um, what what I can just uh, conclude by saying is that it it was definitely I, I remember also in one lab meeting we had this um, this little picture of the game uh, life. I don't know if you guys played that game growing up. That is like you you go through twists and turns as you as you grow up. You uh, well, some people buy a house, buy a car, more more responsibilities, and there's all these twists and turns that you progress slowly uh, through life. And I remember uh, that we showed uh, Tom and myself just walking through this uh, intricate uh, a game, and it really. Uh, mimicked our our journey in this in this in this project that again with all the complications that it, it had uh, i think that made it uh, a more uh, joyful challenge and, and project that's interesting to hear it uh, it really also the cost was really high so you value it more <laughs> but, mm -hmm. uh, i'm so glad that uh, yeah that you um, kept going. Um, that's really wonderful work, and we get to discuss it also now here too. So, yeah, congratulations, and yeah, we are now very curious uh, to hear your presentation. And everyone, the slides are pinned on top of the room. Feel free to access them. And uh, David, uh, yeah, the stage is yours. Thank you. Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, thanks. So I, I would also uh, uh, tell viewers that please, please chime in on on also your 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 perspective as as we develop uh, uh, and as you remember the key conversations as we were yeah, we sure. were putting I, I, putting this this story together. You're doing a uh, great. So I'll <laughs> yeah, but yeah, but I'll I'll, I'll chime in. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. So one. Uh, we we started so as I as we mentioned we started this project in a in a different uh, with a different uh, mindset initially uh, as we progress at at analyzing the data we got um, interested uh, slowly on this question how how do stem cells die or, or regenerate on this very very big picture question and the uh, if we go to the next slide uh, what what these uh, the reason why we we got interested in this question and we are uh, both of your, of your lab and my lab uh, the reason why we're interested in stem cells and how we what are the the key mechanisms that keep them keep the stem cells happy? Basically, that simply put, is that if we understand those mechanisms, we can, um, uh, in the future, or well, all, I would say right now, we can actually understand the mechanisms of going from a healthy tissue to a damage, and then. What is more important, going back to a healthy tissue, and we believe that uh, that uh, as developmental biologists, uh, we believe that 
the stem cells are really at, at the center of these uh, of these um, of this process. So if we move to the the next slide, uh, the after after thinking about the the overarching question, okay, what um, how stem cells? What do stem cells require to uh, to survive? Uh, what we know is that in homeostasis, these cells are the workhorses that drive uh, the renewal uh, the renewal process. However, these cells rely on microenvironmental signals that are coming from what we call the niche. So. Uh, the niche is, is composed of other cell types that provide, a very uh, um, uh, simply put, provide all the goodies, the nutrients, or, or well, I should say, all the, the proteins required for, uh, for the stem cells to be, uh, to be happy. Interestingly, these niche signals that the stem cells receive are not static. For example, the level of activity of a specific signal can fluctuate between the states of homeostasis and regeneration. And the stem cells are required to properly interpret such fluctuations. And this is where uh, understanding that uh, how stem cells know to uh, know how to respond to uh, the signaling pathways. This key question is the one that comes back to how do stem cells die or regenerate? So uh, to us, this, this question of um, interpreting uh, uh, fluctuating signals by the stem cells was not, was not clear. And that's where uh, we got quite interested in exploring this question in the small intestine. So if we go to the next slide, um, you'll see that uh, the small intestinal epithelium that is depicted here by, uh, by this picture, it's a, a beautiful array of villi uh, uh, and crypt uh, uh, structures and uh, this epithelium is a multifunctional tissue that participates in absorption of nutrients and very importantly, it maintains a barrier against the external uh, environment. In doing so, it is under a constant damage, so it must rapidly repair and regenerate to maintain uh, tissue integrity. And what is uh, quite surprising is that the entire epithelium can renew in three to five days, making it an attractive model to study somatic stem cells. And again, ask this question of how these actively uh, dividing cells uh, respond to a dynamic uh, niche signals. So if we uh, look at a cross section of the intestine, what we'll see is that it's composed of a, a single layer epithelium um, in, uh, we have in the small intestine uh, finger-like protrusions called villi where the majority of nutrient absorption uh, takes place. 
And then we also have a small epithelial vaginations into the mesenchyme that are called crypts. And these crypts are the ones that house these workhorses that we call stem cells. Um, these stem cells that we identify them by a specific a marker a called LGR5 can give are the ones that give rise to the different cell types that compose uh, that compose the intestinal epithelium. So from this point on, we're going to focus on those tiny epithelial invaginations that we call uh, we call crypts. So if we go to the uh, next slide, uh, what is depicted on the left uh, that it, under on the illustration uh, under homeostasis is the the intricate uh, C, uh, uh, signals that come from uh, from the niche that are required for a stem cell a cell renewal and a maintenance. And one of the main signaling pathways that um, you can see that uh, that is uh, that is depicted in the illustration is uh, the wind signaling pathway. We have wind ligands coming from panet cells that are, that are interspersed between the the green LGR5 positive stem cells. We also have um, uh, other wind ligands as well as uh, a wind modulator called responding coming from uh, mesenchymal cells that uh, that are enwrapping that are around the, uh, the intestinal uh, crypts. What we know is that during injury, for example, in this case depicted here, uh, a rotavirus infection, or also during uh, irradiation or in uh, inflammatory diseases like uh, inflammatory bowel diseases, we know that during these processes uh, of injury and uh, uh, followed by regeneration, there is increased wind signaling. So we know that it's essential for the process of uh, regeneration. However, too much wind is not okay. If we tilt the balance to uh, overactivation of the pathway or aberrant, aberrant constitutive activation of a wind, uh, this can lead to a cancer in, in, in the intestine, a colorectal cancer. So if we go to uh, the next slide, this, uh, this is where, uh, as I was mentioning, uh, talking with colleagues, talking to your uh, neighboring labs, uh, talking after conferences in happy hours, uh, it's not only fun, but really it, it is where I believe uh, the, uh, the best science uh, takes place. Uh, and we we got and the reason is that we got interested in this protein discs large one or DLG one for short, thanks to our collaborator uh, Todd Nissel at uh, UCSF. Uh, uh, DLG one is part of the scribal polarity complex and is required for cell polarity in different epithelial cells, 
and is conserved from uh, in Drosophila as well as well as well as in mammals. And uh, the reason why we got interested in it is uh, Todd pointed out to us uh, the fact that uh, DLG one uh, can interact with a key member of the wind uh, signaling pathway that is uh, APC. So. Uh, he knew that we were that we were interested in wind signaling. Um, this, as we mentioned before, this uh, this um, this project started at, at looking at uh, cell competition, but but we kind of converged at, uh, in this in this collaboration. Uh, both uh, two interests: the our interest, uh, Tom. The other, the other postdoc in Ophir's lab and myself in wind signaling and DLG one. Again, thanks for the uh, thanks to the collaboration with uh, the conversations with Todd. So now uh, we knew that um, that we needed if we if we wanted to pursue these, we needed to first very simple look at the uh, DLG1 expression in the intestine. Is it actually there? Is it something to look at or not? And what we what you can see in in, um, in the next slide is that DLG1 depicted in green is basolarily localized throughout the entire epithelium. That is in the crypts as well as in the uh, uh, villus region. We can um, use genetic tools where we can um, genetically ablate, get rid of the DLG1 uh, gene. Um, in this case, under uh, a stem cell driver, LGR5 CRIAR. And after 14 days of chase, uh, let, uh, let's say after 14 days of inducing a DLG1 loss, we see that uh, we we lose a protein expression in also in the entire in the entire epithelium. So we were very very excited about this. We were like, okay, we're we're starting to cook now. We have a protein of interest that it it might be a key player in one of our favorite signaling pathways. Our genetic tools are in place. They're working. Let's see what happens. Well, this is the first uh, turn in our uh, life journey in this story. What we found is that when we get rid of this protein, nothing happens in the intestinal epithelium. And this was puzzling to us because it has been uh, widely uh, documented. Uh, 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 it has been uh, very broadly documented that DLG1 uh, is required for cell polarity. So we, we thought that we were gonna actually disturb at least at some level uh, the, the intestinal epithelium and its, its organization, and that wasn't the case. So uh, we had to go back to the drawing board and what, what we realized uh, looking at the uh, literature is that in our first pass of reading papers, we didn't notice that uh, most of the previous correlation 
between wind signaling and DLG1 function has been seen in, condition, in high wind conditions, meaning in a, in a context where there is overabundance or a active, I should say activation uh, of the wind uh, pathway. For example, it has been shown that loss of DLG1 a decreased survival of a APC a, a mutant mice where the, the wind a canonical pathway is a hyperactivated. A, also, it has been shown that in patients where, a, with Crohn's disease that a, experience a chronic inflammation, they, there's lower a, DLG1 a, expression and in these conditions, there's a, a, there can be increased wind signaling. And it has been reported that a loss of DOG1 in the intestinal epithelium may be involved in the pathogenesis of, of this disease. So if we go to the next slide, uh, what, uh, knowing this, we knew that we needed to challenge the intestine. And when I say challenge, I mean that we needed a, a um, uh, uh, to design an experiment that we could increase uh, wind signaling, but at the same time, leaving the, the creep compartment intact, because we were interested in, uh, uh, at the end of the day, we, we were interested in the stem cells itself and the creep compartment. So we couldn't injure the creeps because that's what we were uh, after. So, um, Thanks to an awesome collaboration with um, Mary Estes group at, at Baylor, um, we were able to use this uh, very elegant uh, injury model that they have developed that is uh, infecting mice uh, with, uh, with rotavirus. And the, the reason why this is such a, uh, in my opinion, such a beautiful system is that the rotavirus infects a bilus tip cells, differentiated cells, and promotes a cell death of uh, those cells, as you can see in, um, in the lower panel in the rotavirus infected bilus uh, that we are looking at them from, from the top. There's increased Clivka space three uh, marker for apop uh, apoptosis, in uh, in cells that are at at the top of the uh, of the views. Also, what is very interesting about this system is that the crypts, the creep compartment, is completely spared from injury. But what they have reported previously is that after infection, there's increased wind signaling in the in the, in the intestinal niche. So with this system, we were getting the best of, let's say two worlds. We were keeping our creeps intact. And at the same time, uh, in a physiological, uh, physiological relevant model, we were able to increase wind signaling in our DLG1 knockout mice. And we had a, an aha moment here where we saw that when we look at whole mount crypts from the bottom, we, we start seeing this 
beautiful blobs of dying cells uh, in inside uh, the crypt compartment. And needless to say, as you can see in the in the top panel, this is a this is a very rare uh, event that we that we would that to find in wild type conditions. So we knew, okay, we we're. We are now getting this phenotype and it aligns to what has been published that uh, it's possible that DLG1 requirement uh, uh, um, is attached to high wind conditions. So we go to the next slide. This is just quantification of the, the phenotype where we uh, quantified uh, the, the number of Crips that contain at least one dying cell. Uh, these we did all this in in whole mount uh, tissue. Uh, then the the other quantification is that we see a, a slight, a still significant decrease in the number of total crypts in uh, in this point testing. So if we go to the next slide, what we decided to do next uh, was to. Uh, take advantage of the organoid culture system. We can culture intestinal uh, mini, mini guts that are intestinal organoids in, uh, on a dish in vitro. And the, the, uh, the benefit of doing this is that we can, we can titrate or we can take out factors that are, are required for organoid growth. And one of those factors is uh, wind ligands. So basically, we can uh, we can reduce wind signaling or increase wind signaling, and by doing so, we can we can assess the impact of these uh, fluctuations in in wind uh, signaling in uh, the organoid system. The other uh, key advantage of the organoid system is that it's uh, composed entirely of uh, epithelial, intestinal epithelial cells. So we can uh, directly test if this is an effect on the intestinal epithelium. And also we can enrich for stem cells and ask if this is a stem cell uh, dependent phenotype. So uh, after explaining all that and the benefits of using this in vitro model, what we first did was to culture intestinal organoids in what we call a standard wind media. This is what it would be uh, equivalent to homeostatic uh, wind levels. And what we what we found is that uh, slowly, and, uh, uh, however progressively and steadily, we lost DLG1 knockout uh, intestinal organoids. However, this, pro this loss took about 47 days. So it, it was quite a slow process. Now, when we increase wind, wind um, signaling uh, by adding exogenous wind in the media, we can speed up this process of losing the organoids by a matter of hours. Now we, we start losing these organoids. They start to form these uh, very small structures and condensates that you see at the bottom, bottom panel by 
as quickly as 24 hours after induction, after adding uh, wind media. Uh, and we, uh, there's, there's even more of these condensates by uh, 72 hours. So we quantify these, we see that there's definitely a drop in the formation of these, uh, of these organoids. Then if you go to the next slide, these are two uh, videos. I don't know if you would, if, if everyone would be able to play them in their, in their computers, but what you would see is that uh, we have a control organoid on the left and a Dilgin knockout organoid in the, in the right. And when we expose organoids to these high wind conditions, we know that we reach for the for stem cells, and we get these uh, these balloon spheroid-like uh, structures, uh, organoids. And what is labeled in magenta is the, epi the epithelial cells, and what you see in uh, in green are uh, cells that are under, undergoing uh, apoptosis. And what you can see, hopefully, is that in the DLG knockout uh, spheroids, they completely collapse and there is a, a higher accumulation of, uh, of dying cells. So what, what was interesting and uh, to us quite interesting is that high wind conditions that are seen in regeneration are now beneficial. The system requires these actually now become detrimental after the loss of this protein called DLG1. And we know that this is a, a, a requirement, at least in the stem cells, because we know that in this uh, in vitro uh, culture system, the majority of the cells that compose these spheroids are, uh, are the stem cells. So uh, if you go to the next slide, we then um, decided or wanted to know what might be going on downstream of a DLG1. And for these, we took an unbiased approach uh, and we decided to isolate DLG1 knockout uh, intestinal stem cells uh, that express LGR5 GFP. So we can fax sort GFP-positive cells that we know are stem cells. And uh, after isolating them at two days or 14 days after uh, these cells have lost uh, DLG1, we did um, RNA-seq. And usually uh, when we take these unbiased approaches, as many of you do, we are expecting to get um, an, an amount of uh, targets that we can then explore and basically we can even start an entire lab and, and several uh, uh, PhD projects based on a single uh, RNA, uh, RNA sequencing experiment. However, what was again interested, uh, interesting as this whole story uh, was to us is that we found just one gene that was differentially expressed, specifically downregulated between um, wild type stem cells and DLG knockout stem cells. Uh, when I say that it was the only gene that was differentially expressed, I mean that it was the only gene 
that was consistently at day two and day 14 differentially expressed. However, we get other genes that are differentially expressed either at day two or at day 14. But since this gene was consistent, um, we decided to focus on, uh, on it and try to dig deeper on its function. And this, uh, this gene is called ARGAP31 and is a CDC42 uh, GTPase uh, activating protein. So if you go to the next slide, you'll see that we validated our uh, RNA-seq uh, experiments uh, via a single molecule in situ hybridization. We see that uh, ARGAP31 is indeed expressing the intestinal epithelium. After DLG1 knockout, we lose expression transcripts of uh, ARGAP31. If you go to the next slide, and I'm almost um, uh, at the end of the of the presentation, uh, what what we uh, uh, what we decided, or well, let's say we we were actually lucky to find someone uh, to collaborate with us on on uh, on exploring the function of ARGAP31, and um, this was also a, a uh, this was a collaboration uh, with uh, Natalie uh, Lamarche Vein at McGill. Um, uh, at this point, we contact her. We we told her about our story, and um, she she got quite interest interested in it since her her lab works on uh, these uh, GTPase uh, proteins, and she had in her colony. Uh, ARGAP31 conditionally uh, knockout uh, mice. So we imported these mice and we used our most robust uh, assay that, it, that is the formation of, uh, of these um, uh, organoids in between the presence of, of wind and tested if ARGAP31 uh, meme, uh, could phenocopy the loss of DOG1. And well, uh, that was a long explanation just to something that you're seeing very clearly in these images that there is indeed loss uh, of the uh, of intestinal organoids as we expose them to uh, to high wind so if you if you go to the next slide uh, what you will see is that uh, first off on your left uh, there is a quantification of active CDC42. As I mentioned before, uh, ARGAP31 uh, is a GTPase protein that uh, can and will de deactivate the function of CDC42. So uh, our prediction was, well, if, the, if there's reduced ARGAP31, this should lead to an activation of CDC42 in the intestinal epithelium. And when we measure active CDC42, uh, that is what we what we saw. And what is what was uh, way more interesting, and at this point, this is where things started to fit into place. After after years of of, of work, we 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 found out that CDC42 is actually a downstream activator of the wind planner cell polarity pathway. And this pathway is involved in cell proliferation, 
uh, and cell, cell migration, basically cytoskeletal uh, dependent phenotypes. So uh, one of, uh, in conversations with uh, Natalie, we, uh, one of the uh, key experiments to test a CDC42 function is cell migration. So we decided to uh, uh, culture these 3D organoids into 2D mon uh, monolayers and treat them with a high wind. And uh, hopefully you can see if you play the videos that when we uh, do a wound assay just by a scratching in the middle of a confluent uh, dish with uh, intestinal stem cells after wind signaling, uh, you can see that the DLG knockout organoids are not able to close the wound and they take quite uh, longer to move the same distance as uh, the control uh, uh, to the to the organoids. So I would just uh, uh, wrap up uh, here with with a summary that what what we found is uh, that downstream of wind signaling we require DLG one and uh, and downstream of DLG one we have. ARGAP31 and CDC42, and this molecular axis is essential in intestinal stem cells for two things, basically, what we found is, one is a proliferation as well as a, a cell migration. And what, what is quite interesting about this story is that it tells us that a, something that having too much of something is good, but a, in the right context. If we, in this case, if we lose DLG1, some, too much of something good actually becomes a, becomes bad or a, let's say, quote unquote, a, toxic. A, and yeah, the, the last slide is take home, these take home messages that I, that I already, a, uh, cover them. So um, uh, I, I, I won't go through them. And, uh, and this, this has been really uh, a, a tour de force. Like it really takes a village to push uh, this project uh, forward. Um, all of it uh, was done under the, the, the guidance and the, the, the pep talks from Ophir to, to persevere. And uh, I should say also all these, uh, the, my partner in crime was uh, Thomas, Thomas Wall and other collaborators within UCSF as well as other collaborators uh, outside uh, UCSF. So yeah, that, that's what I had to, to share today, a, a snippet of the, of the story. Uh, and yeah, we'd love to hear if, if people have uh, any questions or, or, or comments. Yeah, David, I just want to say you did a great job with that. So thanks for uh, for putting that whole thing together. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, thank you so much uh, for sharing this this really um, impressive work. And again, I'm so glad. Um, yeah, you you moved, <laughs> you continued moving along because it's really important work uh, to see that balance. And I feel like um, you see that in all kinds of different areas of you know it reminds me a little bit 
for example, of cortisol uh, in the brain, like uh, during development, if you have like stress factors, it can be that you end up with too much or too little and both is kind of bad for mental health type of resilience. So it's it's really interesting to see that that balance in the right context is, um, is so important. On the other hand, don't you feel sometimes like, oh my God, all of this is so fine-tuned. Will we ever be able to like <laughs> fix something? <laughs> How do you feel about that? <laughs> Oh, you're out with you. I, I would just, I would just say that 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 type of questions haunt me, and at the same time challenge challenges me to to keep doing these. I I think that, uh, yeah, biology is so so perfect, uh, and so complex that uh, that well, I'm 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 thank I'm thankful for that that, because that's why we we have we have a job, <laughs> and yeah. Uh, and but yeah, it, it's it's really uh, haunting and sometimes overwhelming, right? How these uh, fine uh, balance is maintained, and is it can we can we actually get to uh, uh, understand it to the fine grain detail to be able to manipulate it for for the benefit of, of, of patients. Uh, I, I think, I think we can, and there, there has, well, there, there has been already, a, a very seminar, a seminal, uh, um, uh, ther- uh, therapies that do so, but definitely, definitely it's, it's, it's challenging. Yeah. Thank you for that. And, and then, the the follow up question I have is, did you start looking into? I know that um, you want to, I guess in in the future you want to go into, you know, human cells um, samples probably to analyze this. Um, do you see in different or do you expect in different disease models uh, this balance? to be um kind of widespread this 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 equilibrium being out of balance um in in different cell types and not just in the intestine i was thinking you know for example there was a news article um this week out that uh, fertility in men is going down and probably it is related to pollution and so on could a similar system be responsible for various kind of pollution-related, um, you know, stress factor disorders, basically? Huh. Interesting. I hadn't hadn't thought about that. I don't know, David. What do you think? It's. Uh, I think in in general that that similar systems are probably in place in many organs that require. A balance between proliferation and uh, and and but not having over proliferation, as David was showing, if if you have too much of a good thing, you can have problems, and so um, it seems likely that that most tissues will have these kinds of mechanisms built in, and they've probably evolved over time. They were selected for as 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 positive uh, for the system. Yeah, yeah, I I I, I totally I 
agree with with that. Like we we see we see these patterns uh, being repeated. Like they are they are uh, these mechanisms are are being used over and over uh, in in biology. And yeah, Sophia was uh, pointed out the uh, thanks to these evolutionary pressures they they have been in place because they they work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was thinking just <laughs> it's it's of course way more complicated than that, but make a bunch of organoids of you know brain, whatever, liver, um, all kinds of, and then pour some, you know, um, some common pollutants on it and see <laughs> what happens. But this probably I don't know if you write a grant like this, people will say it's a fishing <laughs> expedition. <laughs> And then they will not give you a grant. I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I think for sure. Well, from from the grant perspective, yeah, I guess that would be one one of the uh, most reviewers would would say that. I, I think that. Uh, so we we let's say this this example, this story that we just which we, we just shared. Uh, it's. Uh, we're we're looking at the at the cellular level, right? So, however, th- there are next level questions of what, at, at least for example, in the intestine, but related to uh, pollutants, is like what the things that we're consuming uh, nowadays. Uh, uh, well, depending on on the food source. Um, it, it can contain potential harmful uh, uh, carcinogens or uh, harmful um, uh, toxins, and and it it this next level question is like how this might be affecting your the our microbiome, how this microbiome then is affecting uh, at the cellular level in let's say in the context of DLG1 or high wind. So it's it's definitely, this is a, a homely, I, I humbly say it's just a tiny piece of, of a puzzle that 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 for sure it's it's part of a of a more complex um uh more complex context that 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 is going on and that's that's where also uh, collaborations with with other colleagues uh, thinking about these problems in in a uh, from a different perspective uh, it's so valuable uh, because it brings it brings it adds more pieces into the puzzle to hopefully get get a better a better picture but uh, but yeah this this is just a, a tiny bit of uh, of a of a bigger of a bigger picture for sure. Mm. Yeah. So, for example, you know, in autism, it has been shown that migration of neurons during development is kind of faulty, and integration of the system is kind of not working well. So, I was thinking of that, and you know. Um, but yeah, it it's it would be interesting to kind of use this as a principle and then check 
um, other systems too. I think I think it would be really interesting. But I didn't want to take over the stage. I know Dr. Shah is here, Akil and Catherine. If you have questions, uh, please go ahead. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much, both David and Afi, for your wonderful talk. My question in regards to the DLG1, and you mentioned about uh, CDC42, and I was wondering, because we have the same gene involved in a uh, kind of cervical cancer uh, by contribution of the HPV. And however, when we are talking about the mucosal immunity, it just make it more interesting. And I was wondering, maybe you have further information that you can share with us. I don't know anything about cervical cancer. I don't know, David, if you've come across this in any of your reading. I I, I have, yeah, no, I have, I have not. But the, the what what comes across like after like during during these uh, um, reading for uh, when putting together these these uh, this story is that definitely for example cdc 42 is it's this regulator of proliferation and migration and and it has been involved uh, in emt um, uh, and cell migration uh, during during cancer so that has been but it has been in in the context of diff, uh, other uh, other epithelial cancers uh, regarding cervical cancer, I uh, uh, I don't know. I know that um, uh, yeah, I know that that uh, in certain contexts, it's again, it's all it's also context dependent because it has been shown to be CDC forty two uh, increases uh, promotes cell migration. Uh, however, in in our studies. What we see is that an uh, activation of CDC42 is having the, the opposite phenotype. And in talking with one of our collaborators, Natalie at McGill, uh, she, she just, um, before this uh, paper came out, um, she, has, she had a, a paper showing that uh, in um, other epithelial cancers, Actually, too much of CDC42 is detrimental for the survival of the cancer and for migration. So I think like, um, even though we have, as, as I was saying though, that there are these patterns that are repeated in biology, it, uh, the, the context, uh, context matters. As long as you just mentioned about IBD and polarity, somehow they are related to each other and it can be, uh, you know, <laughs> get involved into the DLG1 as well as CDC42. However, is there any specific reason that you just chose uh, uh, retroviruses? For example, why you didn't choose adenoviruses? The, uh, you mean that for for the infection, the rotavirus yes, infection? that was part of your slides. So, yeah, well, the the reason why we we chose the rotavirus infection is that uh, our, uh, our collaborator, Mary Estes, have, uh, at Baylor, has a beautifully detailed uh, how this infection 
takes place in the intestine and how it actually uh, the virus doesn't affect the 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 creep compartment so that was one of the reasons that we wanted this type of injury model the second reason and i think is well equally important is that with rotavirus there is an increase in a uh, wind uh, target genes and with wind ligands uh, in the uh, intestinal niche as well well in the intestinal uh, mesenchyme uh, uh, and also in the intestinal uh, epithelium that is the the um, the the other element that we were uh, looking for to have an injury system in, in which we have increased wind signaling uh, in the in the in the creep compartment and where the stem cells will be healthy the only uh, the only variable in that case uh, uh, was the loss of DOG1 in, in the epithelium. So I think that, that those two reasons were the, the main reasons why we chose this uh, injury, injury model. And how many days you mentioned about the niche of the, I mean, concentrated yeah. and neutrophil just gathering and all of those things. Did you, do you have further explanation yeah, no. about that? Yeah, we. I, I actually didn't cover the the specifics uh, mainly because of, of time. But you know that is a great question. Uh, we uh, we gavage the mice the mice with uh, with rotavirus, and it takes uh, four days uh, to have the peak of infection. And again, this has been nicely uh, described by by. Um, by the SS lab, uh, so what we what we did was we uh, knocked knocked out uh, DOG uh, DOG one pre, uh, prior uh, prior in, infection, and then we infected with rotavirus. Let's say that was day zero, and we collected four days uh, after infection, since it has been uh, since. Uh, the SS lab previously reported that that was the peak of infection. I see. Thank you so much for your response. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, Ophir, did you want to say something? Did you want to add something? No, I think David did a great job of, uh, of fielding all these questions, and he's really kind of the, the expert on the on the project. So thanks to David for doing that. Yeah. Um, do you have time for one or two more questions? Um, or yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Um, hi, Akil. How are you? Do you? Did you want to ask something? Yeah. Yeah. I had one question. So my brother, he suffers from like ulcerative colitis. So I have a uh, one one question. Like, uh, how how might the uh, you know manipulation of the the DAC axis uh, in the ISC uh, be utilized to uh, develop like novel therapeutic strategies for promoting uh, tissue generation and repair in patients uh, suffering from, uh, you know, IBD such as uh, Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. I mean, regeneration, not generation, regeneration. Okay. Yeah, that's that's a great question, David. You you want to go? Or you want me to, to answer it? Hey, go go for it. Go for it. Um. 
so there, there's a big question in IBD about how much there's defects in regeneration versus uh, we, we know that the main drivers are inflammation, but there's also an idea in the field that regeneration is defective. And so there's a lot of discussions about potential therapeutics that could fuel regeneration and, and improve healing. And the most obvious candidate for that is the Wnt pathway. Uh, and as we've talked about, titrating the levels of signaling is not trivial. And so... Um, I don't know that necessarily DLG1 itself would be a target, but, but by understanding all of the different components of the pathway and the ways that it can be regulated, we'll learn more that, that lays the foundation for development of therapeutics in the future. Um, and David, you feel, feel free to, to chime in on that. I, 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 completely, I completely agree. Like, uh, yeah, uh, understanding uh, the the wind pathway and well DLG one as now as we described uh, uh, as part of this pathway that will uh, help us on hopefully in, in the near future uh, develop better therapeutics for um, yeah Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis for for epithelial intestinal epithelial regeneration. Yeah, I I was thinking like like by studying the like interactions between the the DAC axis and the gut uh, microbiome to better understand like how the microbiome may influence the uh, ISC behavior and wind signaling during the IBD, you know, can potentially like uh, open up like new avenues for the microbiome targeted uh, ther therapies. So what do you guys think about this uh, kind of strategy? Uh, Ophir, you, you want to go? Yeah, or? I, I, I'm not sure I quite understood. Can you t t t tell me one more time ex what, what, what you're asking? Like one of the potential strategies, what I was thinking was like, like by studying the interaction between the, uh, you know, the DAC axis mentioned in the lecture and the gut microbiome to better understand how the microbiome may influence the, uh, you know, ISC behavior and the wind signaling during the uh, IBD conditions. You know, can potentially open up new avenues for microbiome. Yeah, I, yeah. So, no, I, I think I understand what you're asking. So the, um, the the microbiome is clearly a very important part of a number of diseases, including in uh, conditions like inflammatory bowel disease. And um, our lab and you know many other labs are looking at how the intersection between the microbiome and the inflammatory cells and the epithelium and other components of the of the system interact. And so it's probably not going to be the case that, that each one does its own thing, but rather that they are talking to each other and that by manipulating one, you're going to manipulate others. So as David was mentioning, it's a complex system, but we think that slowly chipping away at it, we're making progress in terms of understanding the various components. All right. Yeah, that, that, that helps. Thank you so much for answering. Yeah, uh, I know Victoria uh, joined later, so um, she, I don't know. I just wanted to give you a chance to speak, Victoria, if you don't have a question. Oh, hi. No, I'm, I'm glad to be here. I'm sorry to arrive so late, and I'm appreciating everything that I'm seeing and hearing. Thank you very much. Yeah, I had another question about 
how or are you looking into like um, epigenetic mechanisms that might influence um, you know this um, axis of signaling um, and which which mechanisms might play a role um, during especially during development and later on in aging maybe David, you want to you answer that one? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, so if, if, if I understood, uh, Katarina, you, you're asking uh, what, what's our take on epigenetic changes in, in, in the intestinal epithelium and how that also affects later in life? Is, is that correct? Yeah, and how it affects this balance of um, um, you know, then deciding between um, death or life or and division and migration, like especially, yeah, I don't know, is there methylation or histone or maybe even, um, you know, G-force or um, eye motifs going on due to different... Um, factors that then change RNA levels and, and gene expression? Yes, like, so we, that is definitely um, uh, a possibility. Uh, and at this point, we haven't uh, looked at, um, uh, we haven't looked at doing and like for example, an ataxic on these on on these uh, intestinal stem cells. Uh, looking back, uh, uh, well, uh, hindsight is twenty twenty. But so for sure, it, it would have been nice to do a multi-ohm uh, approach with uh, the isolated uh, intestinal stem cells. But but yeah, this at this moment we haven't. Uh, really looked at the, the, the role of epigenetics in, in the context of, of the OG1 loss. Uh, but I, yeah, I don't know if here, if you, if you had any, any speculations about, about it. No, I think, I think you, you've, uh, you've answered it well. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I, I think it's, yeah, it's just an interesting field. I would, yeah, I, I wrote some grants about, you know, looking, especially what interests me is these, um, these 3D formations, um, how they can change. Because we talked about, um, and in your model using, you know, you introduced a virus and I just thought it would be really interesting to see you know to see these formations i know there are antibodies that you can visualize these uh, dna 3d formations yeah so, so i thought it would be interesting to look at it but it would be a whole nother project and a lot of work so <laughs> <laughs> yeah definitely it sounds it sounds sounds quite quite interesting but yeah <laughs> It's always easy to have ideas, right? But <laughs> I don't know all of it. It's a problem. I agree. And uh, I know, Catherine, you have been trying to 
raise your hand. I, I invited you a bunch of times. It doesn't seem to work. So um, maybe do you want to share in the chat uh, your comment or question, Catherine? Um, yeah, I, I'm really sorry about that, but it seems to not been working or maybe you you don't want to raise the hand anymore. I just wanted to make sure you know that you know, I realized you want to speak and raise your hand. So, yeah, I wanted to thank you for taking the time to come here and to share this really amazing work with us and um, that um, the data is, is really interesting and the fact that, you know, biology is, again, so fine-tuned and that the context um, is really important. Um, is is also uh, really interesting to hear so um yeah thank you so much we really appreciate it and yeah this was an amazing discussion so um, i hope you enjoyed it <laughs> yeah thanks for inviting us yeah thanks thanks so, so much for having us yeah wonderful and um yeah, maybe one day we'll, we'll speak again. Uh, we'll invite you again if you want to go through the hustle again to come here. <laughs> and yeah, for everyone, thanks for asking questions and um, for being here. If you like discussions like this, uh, you can join us again, of course. And um, the next talk will be actually about um, climate change and um, how reduced ocean CO2 uptake is going on due to slowing of circulation of uh, ocean currents. It's a very different type of talk, but I think it will be also interesting. So thank you again, Ophir and David, and we wish you all the best for the future. It's really important work. And um, thank you so much again. Thank, thanks. It was, thanks. It was nice to be here. Close the room in Bye. three, two, one. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.